Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's no option but victory for Ukraine. Canada will be there to support Ukraine's fight for freedom for as long as it takes. And once they win, we will help them to recover. It's Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie speaking at the United Nations today, just ahead of the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that there's no option but victory for Ukraine. Well, and that's true really for all intents and purposes, but it doesn't mean that victory for Ukraine is guaranteed. It doesn't mean that Russian failure is guaranteed. Russian victory looks unlikely at this point, but I think this whole situation is, is far from settled. So what's it going to take to ensure that Ukraine's future is secured? It's an interesting new policy paper uh, looking at that exact question, a comprehensive strategy to secure Ukraine's future. It's a collaboration between the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, the Norwegian Atlantic Committee, the Hague Center for Strategic Studies, and the Alphen Group. Joining us uh, to talk more about it is Colin Robertson, a former Canadian diplomat, vice president, and fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, Colin, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you again, Rob. Well, your assessment of where we're at, first of all, as we approach the anniversary of the Russian invasion, and certainly we've seen Russian failures uh, over the past 12 months, but how much do things still hang in the balance? Well, I think things hang very much in the balance because the Russians are putting big effort in to start a, uh, a spring campaign, which appears to be getting in the, the areas where they occupy in the eastern region, the what they call the Donbass region, and They've got, uh, over the last six months, they recruited another 300,000 soldiers, and they are now trained, or at least we'll see how how well they're trained in the the coming days. And in fact, the the estimates of the, I was looking at the the British, who keep pretty good track of this stuff, that they reckon that the Russians are, are losing at least 100, maybe 200 people a day in the campaign, which has already begun. Uh, and it would sort of resemble the kind of trench warfare uh, you would have seen in the First World War, but in winter conditions. Right. And and even though the prospect of, you know, total Russian victory seems remote or seems unlikely, there's still ways that, that Russia could salvage something here in terms of setting some new realities on the ground, recognizing Ukrainian territory as, as Russian. So there there are varying degrees, perhaps, of victory that Russia could still salvage. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's absolutely fair, Rob. And that's exactly what they've done. They've annexed Crimea after their campaign in 2014. Right. And... The provinces that they partially occupied and still partially occupied, and this amounts to about 17 percent of, uh, of of Ukraine's territory. You know, keep in mind Ukraine is roughly the size of Alberta, but with a population of 44 million. Although about eight, nine million of those people have been displaced and are living in other parts of Ukraine, or many of them are living in Lithuania and Poland, and of course some refugees have come to Canada. Right. So to that end, then, what, what needs to be the, the goals or the aims here as we think about a, a strategy for what the, the end result needs to be? Well, the, the first 
the, the first goal has got to be, as, as Melanie Jolie said, Ukrainian victory. And that will only happen if the West continues to provide Ukraine with the arms they need. The Ukrainians are prepared to fight. We've seen that. They're, 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 they're quick learners, but they need the armaments that only the West can provide. Because for a long campaign, they simply don't have the capacity. But keep in mind that the Russians have pulverized their country, trying to take out their infrastructure as much as possible, their uh, hydroelectricity, their electricity generation. And uh, as you know, they've also bombed hospitals and uh, and schools. And one of the things Melanie Jolie said in her speech today is that they should be held accountable for war crimes, something that Kamala Harris said on the weekend at the Munich uh, conference. And Jolie echoed joe biden when she said that we'll be there as long as it takes and i think that's some that's an important message but being there as long as it takes also means providing them with uh, the armaments they need to be able to take back the territory that the russians took in 2014 and i think we should be pretty definite about what we expect of the russians that they withdraw to the boundaries that were ukraine when it became independent of the soviet union in 1991 so first and foremost, then, that that has to mean, and in the short term especially, then arming Ukraine, making sure they have what they need. Absolutely, and, and we are doing that to the extent we have, but we have let our own capacity run down. The, the Americans have been critical of us for some time on this front. You know, we are integrated closely with the United States, uh, and we benefit from that relationship, but our own capacity, is, as, as we know, has been pretty slight, and that's why over the past year the government has been purchasing new fighter jets, for example, and uh, the, the frigate program, which began under the Conservative government, but it's taking an awful long time for us to, to rearm. Uh, amongst the, the NATO nations, we're, we're in the bottom quartile of, of uh, those. We, we are a long way from meeting the NATO target that was set in 2014 of 2%, spending 2% of GDP on, uh, on defense. So yeah. We currently spend about 1.3%. And I always like to think this is like insurance. We're we're, we're living in, in tumultuous times, and so you and your insurance rates go up. But if you don't pay them, you you pay a price. And I think that's that's the danger for Canada, given that we've got uh, we've got a big land mass, we've got uh, the longest maritime border in the world, and uh, that also includes the Arctic, where both the Chinese and the Russians are active. Right. Now, moving forward, even if we're able to assist Ukraine in pushing back the Russians, resisting any kind of Russian counteroffensive, you know, being able to create some sort of permanent or lasting on-the-ground conditions, I think there's a sense that we're just in a perpetual conflict here, that there's always going to be a risk that Russia's going to try again, or that Russia is going to mount some kind of a counteroffensive, even if it suffers setbacks. So how do we translate those successes, if Ukraine's able to do it, into something lasting? Well, that's that's why we the strategy we put together, which runs on sort of four tracks: the diplomatic track, the military track, the economic track, and the informational track. But also, we divide it into sort of three parts: the short term, medium term, and long term. And you're now talking about long term, and that's something we have to take quite seriously, which is continuing to provide Ukraine with the armaments they need, but also reconstructing the country. And that's going to be a massive effort. The International Monetary Fund reckons that's like 150 billion dollar project. And I think Canada will play its part in that, although the European Union should take the lead there. But in the immediate, it's getting arms. And then in the longer term, providing them with guarantees. So the Russians do not want to see Ukraine join NATO, but I think NATO, uh, Ukraine has proven itself to be 
NATO ready. There are some other things that we require, but I think that to prevent the Russians going back into Ukraine, if NATO were to incorporate, uh, because it is, after all, an alliance that has been open to all countries, and we've stated that, and there are a number of countries that were part of the former Soviet Union have joined, like Hungary and Poland and the Baltics. Uh, and we opened the door to Ukraine in 2008 and said, yeah, when you're ready, we'll let you you join so i think we should probably follow through on that because i think with that would act as a deterrent to russians because if they were then to decide to invade ukraine then they would be subject to all uh, there be nato troops which would mean canadian and american troops potentially going to to support ukraine well it's interesting because i know there, there are some who fear that you know as a potential escalation or the kind of situation that could drag us into a conflict but i think what you're arguing is is if we want peace that this is, is the best way to achieve that. We need a meaningful way of deterring Russia. We need to deter that aggression. No, and, and we have seen this time and again with aggressors, that if they think, well, they, they do their calculation, and they say, can we do this? Well, Putin thought, after having seen the Americans and NATO pull out of Afghanistan, and that was a bit of a disaster, uh, and having already gone into Chechnya and Georgia and moved into Ukraine in 2014 and absorbed the territory with, with very few uh, punitive measures on the part of the West, even though this was breaking UN covenants, they thought they could they could do it. And I think uh, Xi Jinping looks at Taiwan and says, hmm, if the West isn't going to raise anything, well, well, we'll take Taiwan back. So the only, again, history tells us that if there's a strong deterrent power, and I think the Russians have, have certainly been surprised by the response of the West, and they're doing everything they can to sort of divide the West and, and, and pull countries like Germany and France away from support. But I think the publics in certainly Europe uh, and Canada and the United States, the polling tells us that, the, that while the, there may be some division amongst the political class, the public themselves understands what aggression is all about and also understands the sort of fundamental principle of deterrence. You know, in terms of moving forward with Ukraine as a partner, you know, the reconstruction and, and perhaps future EU and NATO membership, what more do we need to see? There, there have been steps toward reform as Zelensky's been fighting the Russians. He's been trying to clean up corruption and address some of those issues. Do we need more of that from, from Ukraine? Yes, very much so. I think that, that in our strategy, we say that we will provide aid to Ukraine but we want to see good faith on the part of the Ukrainians because it was basically run by cartels, the, the, the business class, and, and there was high corruption. It was, it was the most corrupt country in Europe, and that includes Russia, before the invasion. So the, the Ukrainians have work to do themselves, and I think Zelensky and the, those who are fighting realize that, that they're, that they're looking to reform their country at the same time they're defending their country. And it often takes these kind of galvanizing events before countries will fix what's, what ails them, a bit like Germany and Japan after the Second World War. And so I think uh, that, that that will be laid out clearly in the support that the West will give. But, for example, to join the European Union, which they're on track to do, they've got to make significant reforms. And there's a, a series of countries in the former Yugoslavia that are still waiting to join the EU but haven't got there yet because corruption is still a problem. Well, the strategy, this piece, it can be found uh, online, cgai.ca. Colin Robertson, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. Thanks, Rob.
All the best. Take care. That is Colin Robertson, uh, Vice President and Fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, this paper, A Comprehensive Strategy to Secure Ukraine's Future. Again, CGAI.ca, done in collaboration with the Hague Center for Strategic Studies and the Norwegian Atlantic Committee. So we're at a bit of a tipping point here as we mark one year since the Russian invasion. We'll see where this all goes from here. But off the top in this hour, the conversation that's been happening around women's sports and ensuring that the integrity of women's sport is protected and how best to do so while being fair to transgendered athletes and being fair to female athletes at the same time. Is competition being altered? Is there an element of unfairness when it comes to male-bodied athletes or individuals who were born male? and identify or transition to female competing in women's sports. Because the reason why men and women's sports exist separately in the first place has to do with biology, not necessarily social issues. So someone identifying as a gender outside of sport has maybe less relevance than when it comes to the uh, fairness within sport. And so how should sports and sports governing bodies navigate all of this? And more specifically, how do the female athletes feel about all of this? So there's some really interesting new research and some survey results with that that finds, for example, 91% of female athletes agree that female athletes should have the right to compete in dedicated female sports categories and sex-affected sports. 88% agree that trans women do have a competitive advantage over females. 88% also disagree when asked if gender identities are more important than biological sex when deciding eligibility in high-performance sports. There's a commentary piece uh, done for the McDonald laurier Institute about these findings called Breaking the Silence. Female athletes speak about safe and fair sport in Canada. Joining us for more, the author of that piece, Linda Blade. President of Athletics Alberta, former Canadian track and field champion, spent a quarter of a century as a high-level uh, sports professional coach, uh, much more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. But, Linda, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rod. Good to be with you. Well, from your perspective, how important are, are these findings? And, and to hear directly from female athletes about how they feel about all of this. Well, it's, it's groundbreaking because female athletes have never never been consulted about what they feel or what they think about sports policies that have trended towards complete self-identification, no barriers to male athletes in our sports. Does that surprise you at all? What did you make of that? It surprises me more that two things happened along the way when this uh, survey was being attempted and Spring of 2022, a year ago, um, a trans activist organization in the States found out that the Canadian government was actually consulting with its own athletes, and they sent a letter to our government asking for them to stop the survey, stop funding the survey, and the, and our government did that. They, they listened to the organization from the U.S., USA-based organization, asking them to not find out what Canadian women think, and yet... Fortunately, there had been enough survey responding and, and completed surveys by that time that the report was able to go ahead, even though the funding had stopped. And then once this report came out with the kind of percentages that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. the government tried to lock down the document 
And it was only through access to information that the McDonald Laurier got access to it and asked me to do a, a forward commentary on the release of that report. Right. So, well, who's responsible then for, I guess, initially a releasing it or B deciding to suppress it? Who was this going through? Well, that would be probably the top brass of Sport Canada and okay. the ministry, probably up into the Minister of Sports office. This is the only thing I can imagine because the, those are the people that have the power to suppress it. How much say does Sport Canada have then on the policies that various sports bodies across the country have around these issues? Well, they have a lot of, of uh, sway, obviously, because they're the main funding agency for all of the sport, national sports organizations. But it's, it's fascinating that the actual persuasion to have the uh, policies that allow men and women's sports is actually being pushed by a different organization called the Canadian Centre for Ethics in Sport. So Sport Canada never said that funding would be predicated on allowing trans-identifying male athletes in women's sports, but a different organization, the Anti-Doping Agency, Canadian Centre for Ethics in Sport, CCES, is the one that was pushing the policy and telling all of the sports organizations this was the right way to go and this was what they had to do. As you note in, in your piece, uh, that, that female athletes feel like they've not been consulted, feel like their voices are being dismissed, feel like they're unable to speak about all of this uh, without mm-hmm. being called names. Uh, what, what, what else does this commentary say about how female athletes are, are feeling about all of these issues? Well, they're sad, they're angry, they're confused, they're intimidated. You can't say one single word. If you're a young woman these days competing in sport, the moment you say something, anything that you would question the right of a male-born athlete to come into your space, depending on how they identify, in that very moment, you're going to be canceled probably on your Instagram, on any social media that you're on. You probably lose, we've had women lose their sponsorships, um, <clears throat> probably lose place, places on teams for all I know, but I'm going to say your female athlete cohort in this country is extremely intimidated to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Right, but I mean, so at least in this kind of a venue where there's presumably then some anonymity, you know, that, that's responding to the survey, it seemed that, that many were quite comfortable then, you know, letting their views be known. Right, because it was anonymous, and that's why the one one, one question where in the survey where it said they got 100% agree is I would feel comfortable raising concerns in surveys and research as long as the athletes' names are kept anonymous. Yeah. Right, so female athletes uh, have some strong views, and clearly there's yes. some, some concern about, about sharing those views publicly. So mm-hmm. keeping female athletes' voices out of the conversation, how does that affect where the debate is, is headed? Well, what it does is it renders female athletes invisible and then it renders their category a completely open template upon which anybody else can just basically write their story. And so every time there's a male identifying athlete who tends to want to come into the women's category and compete there, as you saw with Leah Thomas in the United States last year, that person is the one celebrated, that person is the one in focus, and the female athletes sort of fade into the background. And that person is the one, the male person who is now identifying as a woman is the one that has an overwhelming advantage and gets all the attention. And, you know, it's just 
it just renders the female athlete almost as if uh, invisible, really. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because in the case of someone, you know, like Leah Thomas, for example, it has no bearing yeah. on me. Um, you know, I, you know, referring to Leah Thomas as a female, right. I can do that. It, it doesn't it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect my life. It's, it's not an issue for me. But when it comes to the sport of swimming, the competitiveness of swimming, the reason why there are separate men and women's categories when it comes to swimming, you're saying there, there's no way to ignore or avoid these issues. Well, there isn't. And in fact... I just would like to remind our listeners that both the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Canadian Human Rights Act outline that the Canadian government should not discriminate against girls and women on the basis of sex in relation to laws, programs, employment, and services. That's part of our law. Now, certainly there's a new law that says that you must not discriminate on the basis of gender identity or gender expression, but there are ways to accommodate those other things, these expressions and identities, in ways that do not violate the charter rights of female athletes. And this is where we are trying, uh, in my organization, for example, in Athletics Alberta, uh, very few organizations are taking the stand we have, but in, in we're, we're trying to say we need to keep the guidelines sex-based because you, you compete with bodies, not identities. Right. Uh, and so in order to be fair, we have to also recognize the charter rights of female athletes. Well, we've seen different sporting organizations, not just in Canada, but around the world, take different approaches here. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a patchwork, I guess, when you look at some of the major sports and, and organizations. Who, who yeah. seems to be getting this right, in your view? Is there a sport or an organization we can look to and say, this is the way to do it? Yeah, World Rugby did. World Rugby did uh, a really important thing. Uh, back around 2020, they did, a, just before COVID lockdown, they actually had a global seminar where they brought all of the different parties to the table, trans activists, women's rights, all the different people and the scientists and medical personnel and, you know, the legal people and, and all of those people got <clears throat> together in a big conference and they had reviewed all the data. And what they realized was that if you were going to have a male on the field in rugby, for example, the, the chances of serious head, neck and back injuries to the female athletes on the pitch would go up 20 to 30 percent they could not they could not resolve that level of increased danger and harm to female persons so basically world rugby simply said if you're born male you don't compete in the female category there might be other categories we can have open or whatever but there has to be a category in sport dedicated to the female athlete only and that's for safety Right. So is that only those who were born female? Are there any circumstances, whether it be hormone levels, gender reassignment surgery, where somebody who wasn't born female could still compete as a female? No, because uh, the fact is, is that once a person is born male, and especially if they've gone through male puberty, uh, they already have bigger heart, lungs, larger limbs, broader shoulders, uh, higher blood volumes, uh, bigger heart, like I said, heart mugs, all of the different things. There's a 6,000 variables that distinguish male bodies from females. Just changing one of those isn't going to make, make anything equal. And basically, it, a male-born person can identify certainly any way they'd like, but um, they, they, it, does not, it does not equilibrate or make, level the playing field and make things fair for the female athlete. 
Right. And we think of, you know, I mean, Caitlyn Jenner is an example of somebody who was Mm -hmm. at one point uh, a very high level athlete, one one of the best in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, age aside, Caitlyn Jenner now competing against men would clearly not have any kind of advantage, has probably lost an advantage if she had to compete against men. But you're suggesting still there would be an advantage for somebody like that competing against against female track and field. Yeah, like, for example, and this is what everybody thinks that, oh, you just reduce testosterone and everything is the same now. No, it's not. Uh, men have 50% uh, higher strength in bench press, for example, if you do the power lifting. Um, and if they mitigate their hormone levels even for three years, like even down to castration levels, um, they might lose maybe 6 to 8% of that 50%, so that they're still 40% stronger than women. It, it, does, it does very little to mitigate and bring things into alignment with the female athlete experience. And I would just go ahead and say this, that it's not even about a hormone level. It's about the fact that males and females are two completely different designs. So I always use the race car analogy. Formula One is a different design than stock cars. If, if you put a Formula One in stock car race, people would object, and quite rightly, because they're two completely different designs. You could even say you're using the same gas or whatever, but there are different designs, and the, and the male and female bodies in the human species are two completely different designs. It's not right to keep them and put them together in a sport. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, interestingly enough, auto racing as a sport, there's no women's category. Women compete with men. If there was a transgender mm-hmm. race car driver, it would be a moot point mm-hmm. because it doesn't matter in that sport. As you say, there's yeah, a reason why. Driving, yeah, because they're driving. It's the vehicle doing right, the work. Exactly. But I'm saying... If you're looking at categories, when we say something is a, has a categorical difference, it's a different in design as much as blood levels of certain drug, hormones or, you know, whatever. Like, you, there's, it's the whole package. It's the design is different. Right. And again, and just to be clear, because it's not about all transgender athletes, someone who is born female and identifies mm-hmm. as male, there's no issue at all here when it comes to men's sports, right? Well, someone born female, and and this happens all the time. We have a lot of young women who are, or people who are born female, who suddenly want to be non-binary, see themselves as non-binary, or or identify as trans. And those ones almost always just stay in the female category. I mean, and why would why and why wouldn't they? We we welcome them because they are female athletes. We don't we don't actually pick sport categories on the basis of your religion or your ideal ideology or what personality you have or the fact that you have an identity we don't say all the people who have cousins go over here i mean there's 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 a reason we pick categories in sport and it's based on your physical uh biological sex and and you can identify within you know that way we can respect it but but you know women accept the trans and non-binary female-born athletes in our sports, in the women's sports. So what, the question then becomes, why cannot the male section of sport accept the male-born trans and non-binary in their section? Well, more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca, including these uh, survey results, which are pretty striking and, and certainly should be considered as we discuss these issues. Uh, Linda Blade, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Rob. Much appreciated. appreciate it. All the best. Yeah. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Linda Blade, uh, president of Athletics Alberta, former Canadian track and field champion, has uh, spent years as a high-level sports coach.
and uh, the author of this commentary piece for the McDonald Laurier Institute, which includes these survey results, which the McDonald Laurier Institute had to obtain under an access to information request. The efforts were made to ask female athletes how they feel about these issues. They made their thoughts known and it was swept under the carpet. Hey, folks, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here this Wednesday afternoon. Our number 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. I'd love to get to uh, here this afternoon. We'll get to more of your phone calls as well. But uh, off the top of this hour, some interesting new research around the question of uh, harm reduction when it comes to smoking. And what does the evidence tell us about vaping or e-cigarettes as a smoking cessation tool? And how should our policy reflect that? There's a tendency, it seems now, to treat e-cigarettes almost like cigarettes, to view them the same, to regulate them the same. But shouldn't our policy reflect some of the important differences between the two? And from that, if e-cigarettes can help smokers quit actual cigarettes, shouldn't our policy reflect that? There's a new study in uh, Nature medicine looking at what the evidence tells us about that and the conclusion from the researchers is that there is abundant evidence that e-cigarettes can help some individuals quit smoking so they should be more widely recommended as smoking cessation aids so joining us to talk more about the evidence and how our policy should reflect that we're pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon one of the researchers involved in this study uh, dr kenneth warner is dean emeritus and distinguished university professor emeritus of the university of michigan school of public health Professor Warner, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So when we talk about the evidence around this, what is it we're looking at? How do we go about answering the question of e-cigarettes and their effectiveness as a smoking cessation tool? Well, it turns out we actually have lots of evidence. And the interesting thing is it's lots of different kinds of evidence that all arrive at the same conclusion that vaping does help a subset of smokers to quit smoking. Uh, Notably, and perhaps most importantly, we have a series of randomized controlled trials, which is the gold standard of uh, medical research, that have demonstrated in multiple countries now that e-cigarettes perform better for smoking cessation than government-approved nicotine replacement products like gum and uh, patch and and so the other NRT products. Uh, The Cochrane Review which is recognized worldwide as one of the most important uh, medical review organizations, has said that there is, and I quote, high certainty that smoking quit rates were higher in people uh, randomized to nicotine electronic cigarettes than those randomized to nicotine replacement therapy. But we also have a large number of population studies, uh, which to date suggest that e-cigarettes have increased smoking cessation rates by about 10 to 15 percent. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a hard number to see when you're looking into the data, but that's what the analyses are showing us. And in particular, they're finding that people who vape frequently, daily, say, are more likely to quit than people who are not vaping. Conversely, people who vape infrequently uh, may be less likely to quit But some of them may be vaping simply as a method of filling in for times when they can't smoke to get their nicotine. Right. We also have computer simulation analyses that quite consistently find that vaping would increase smoking cessation. And even though vaping is not harmless, 
that it would reduce premature deaths over time. And that's because it's substantially less harmful excuse me, mm-hmm. than cigarette smoking. And we've got market data. We have inverse sales relationship between cigarette sales and e-cigarette sales. When e-cigarette sales are on the rise, cigarette sales are falling more rapidly than they were previously. We have studies by economists that demonstrate that cigarettes and e-cigarettes are substitutes, and they show that some policies that are intended to restrict e-cigarette use may unintentionally increase cigarette smoking. And those are studies in both youth and adults. That's really interesting. As you allude to, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a panacea or a magic bullet here, but this is, is significant and quantifiable in terms of the impact it can have. So how should that shape policy, do you think? Well, policy actually is a really, really critical piece of this story. If we look at the U.K. and New Zealand, they have taken a, let's call it a sympathetic view toward e-cigarettes. They believe they should be encouraged uh, in smoking cessation clinics and for people who are smoking and trying to quit on their own. And they have evidence that that has increased smoking cessation in their countries. Uh, in, the U- in the U.S. and Canada, our government authorities are more cautious about this. Right. Uh, they acknowledge the potential benefit of e-cigarette use for quitting smoking, but they conclude that the evidence to recommend e-cigarettes for smoking cessation is not yet sufficient. Um, I believe, and my colleagues and co-authors on this paper believe that the evidence is abundant and that by not following it, we are dooming a number of people to premature deaths who could avoid them otherwise. So policy comes in in the sense that in the U.S., we have a regulatory agency, the Food and Drug Administration, that is supposed to be regulating cigarettes and other tobacco and nicotine products. And what it has done so far is to basically discourage the manufacturers of less harmful products while doing not much of anything to harm cigarette smoking, to reduce cigarette smoking. So policy is uh, what we might call bass ackwards in this area (laughs) at this point. Yeah, I would say so. I, I get that there's a dilemma here because as much as we would prefer smokers to switch to e-cigarettes, we don't want non-smokers to start using e-cigarettes. How do we balance those those public health interests? Well, that that's a great question. And the interesting observation, I'm, I'm afraid I have to comment based on U.S. data, which I know sure. better than I do the Canadian data. But in the U.S., what we observe is that a relatively small proportion of adults over the age of 35 are using e-cigarettes at all. And that includes both smokers and non-smokers, but very few never smokers are using them. Mm -hmm. When we look at the group that is the largest users of e-cigarettes among adults in the U.S., they are the young adults, ages 18 to 24. And many of them are people who have never smoked. So these are people who have taken up e-cigarettes, not in the, for the purpose of quitting smoking, but in some instances just because they're interested in it. Right. Now, what's really important to appreciate is that during the era of e-cigarettes popularity, which is roughly a decade now, among both youth and young adults, we have seen precipitous declines in cigarette smoking in both groups. 
smoking among kids in the U.S. I'll just give you an example. In 1997, 38% of high school seniors had smoked at least one cigarette in the past 30 days. That's called current smoking. Today, 2022, and I presume we'll see this in 2023, that's more like 2%. Wow. And, and while smoking has been declining rapidly, and I should say steadily since 1997, it has declined among youth at its most rapid rate ever, precisely during the period of e-cigarettes popularity. And the same can be said of young adults. Now, you would expect, of course, if adolescents are giving up cigarettes, not smoking them, and not starting to smoke them, you would expect to see a similar phenomenon among young adults. But the smoking initiation rate among these young adults has plummeted as well. So this suggests that it is possible that e-cigarettes are serving as substitutes for some of these people who are using them and have never smoked. These may be people who would have smoked otherwise. Because I know there's been a concern, and maybe I, I think it's been more anecdotal. I don't know that we would, would have seen any evidence to indicate it, but the concern that uh, e-cigarettes could be a gateway to, to smoking, that it's an introduction to nicotine, and eventually those users could end up on cigarettes. But have we, have we ever seen any evidence to, to bear up that concern? Yes, there's actually a lot of prospective studies that do have that finding. Um, it's not certain that it is true that vaping is causing some kids to start smoking, but it's possible. And it's certainly likely that vaping is addicting some subset of the kids who are using it. Uh, Although it's important to recognize that among the kids who use e-cigarettes frequently, the much larger percentage of them are kids who either are smokers or were smokers. Mm -hmm. So they may be using e-cigarettes in an attempt to get off of conventional cigarettes. Um, That's uh, a fascinating phenomenon, and, you know, we don't know exactly what the risks are there. I will say this. I don't want to see kids using any nicotine product. Uh, I just assume that they'd lay off of everything. I don't want to see them using marijuana, alcohol, uh, other tobacco products, you name it. But, of course, kids will be kids, and they will try some of these products. What we need to do has come up with policies and media campaigns that will communicate the risks of addiction associated with e-cigarettes, although it's hard to communicate what addiction is all about for people who have never experienced it, and try to find ways to discourage youth use. For example, in the U.S., we have Tobacco 21. No one can buy any tobacco product under the age of 21 now. That's an increase of three years. And it's had a significant impact because a lot of the kids who were smoking in high school, say, were getting their cigarettes from other high school kids who were 18 and could buy them legally. Now they can't get them until they're age 21. So that's had an impact. So there are lots of policies like that that we need to adopt to discourage kids from using any nicotine product and especially combusted tobacco products, which are by far the most dangerous. But the problem is... At least in the U.S., we've taken such a one-sided view of the issue that the media and public health authorities all focus on the risk to kids, the worry about kids becoming addicted to nicotine. And they're ignoring 
the people who are most likely to suffer illness and death in the near term, and that's current cigarette smokers. If we can help current cigarette smokers to quit up to any age, even the oldest cigarette smokers, a portion of that group will avoid a smoking-related death. Because I'm assuming in the countries you talked about earlier, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, that take a different approach when it comes to, I guess, harm reduction, as we would call it, for smokers. Presumably those countries don't want young people using e-cigarettes, don't want young people to be addicted to nicotine. So there is a way to balance both considerations here, isn't there? Absolutely. There are lots of policies one can imagine adopting uh, that would target specifically kids on the one hand and adult smokers on the other. For example, uh, and and this is something that no e-cigarette company in the United States can do now because they have to get approval from the FDA to do it. But if e-cigarette companies were targeting their ads to middle-aged and older smokers and saying, switch, if you haven't been able to quit Otherwise, you know, try nicotine replacement therapy, try varenicline, try behavioral programs. If you haven't been able to quit smoking with any of those and you're quite addicted to nicotine, try to switch to e-cigarettes. And ideally, as we point out in the paper, you want want to quit the e-cigarettes as well once you are confident that you're done with smoking and you're not going to return to it. Mm Well, the study is published at nature.com. Dr. Warner, thanks again for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Professor Kenneth Warner, a Dean Emeritus and Distinguished University Professor Emeritus, University of Michigan School of Public Health, one of the authors of this study published in Nature Medicine, nature.com. As they say, policy should give greater consideration to the potential of e-cigarettes for increasing smoking cessation. E-cigarettes are not a magic bullet, that will end the devastation wrought by cigarette smoking, but they can contribute to that lofty public health goal. However, acceptance of the promotion of these cigarettes as a tool for smoking cessation will likely depend on continuing efforts to reduce access to and use of the products by young people who have never smoked. The two objectives can and should coexist. We've picked one over the other, and it's it's to the detriment, I think, overall of public health. So this this needs to be the approach going forward, I think. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.